Good Physics Day, everyone. As educators and as human beings, we are in a time period that is calling us to pay more attention to the way we behave in the world, to the way we treat others around us, to the way we treat our students and how we meet them in the classroom. Some of us have coasted along with significant privilege in a system designed for and by us. Some of us have had some privilege while also being held back from true equality. And some of us have been fighting an uphill battle of stereotyping, prejudice, and even hostility. Change can often be slow, and many of us educators are being asked to learn new skills in social realms that we hadn't paid much attention to before. We'll make a lot of mistakes along the way, but hey, that's learning, right? This episode, in the same vein as my interviews with Regina Barber de Graff about STEM inclusion, and with Ann Cornerins and Bree Barnett Dreyfus about the Step Up program, I have a guest who will speak to us about allyship. In her book and through her online presence, Karen Catlin shares how to cultivate an environment where coworkers feel welcome, respected, and supported. She shares how to amplify and advocate for others and how to use more inclusive language. She gives us the tools to be better allies and create a culture where everyone can do their best work and thrive. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Catlin, a leadership coach and an acclaimed author and speaker on inclusive workplaces. She coaches women to be stronger leaders and men to be better allies for members of all underrepresented groups. Karen, welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, Brad, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? Oh my gosh, I've had so many mentors. Um, oh, it's almost hard to choose, but given uh, shape my path, it makes me think of more of the beginning of my path. So I think I'll talk about my dad just briefly. Mm. Um, he passed away a long time ago, but the thing I will always remember and treasure and thank him for is that when I was in high school and like many high school students trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to go to college, but what did I want to study in college? I really didn't have any clue. Mm -hmm. And he, I remember a very specific conversation. He pointed out to me, Hey, Karen, you like making things. Like I always was sewing and knitting and that type of thing and crafting. You like making things. You like solving puzzles. And you're really good at math and science in general. So maybe you would like to combine all of those disciplines into this new field. Yes, new field called software engineering. <laughs> so this this is back in like the early 80s, 1980s. So um, people who are good at math can now kind of tell how about how old I am. But that was what was going on then. Software engineering was a brand new field. Computer science was brand new. And my dad pointed that out, like maybe that would be interesting to you. And then he showed me an article from, I think it was Inc. Magazine, about women who were studying this new field and the kind of salaries they were getting when they were going into industry. And um, I grew up very modest, um, very modest means, very modest household. And so the salary kind of caught my eye in addition to my dad saying, hey, you'd probably enjoy this, probably be good at it. Um, so I, that's how 
I decided to study computer science in college. Um, and I'll also share with you, Brad, I had never touched a computer when I had made that decision because back then we just didn't have home computers. <laughs> they we weren't there. Computers in yeah. my school. Um, so it was kind of a big leap of faith. But fortunately, I took the leap and I really enjoyed the, the discipline. Oh, that's that's an amazing insight that that your father had, and I, I'm just thinking I, I I'm remembering my high school days typing with a typewriter, and it, I kind of missed that in one way. But yeah, then it was as I got to college, then then it was computers for everything. <laughs> so it may not be immediately evident to my listeners why I've invited you onto my show about physics teaching. So I want to dig into your past a little bit, which you've started to now get into. So you're so passionate about your current work. And I have to think that the seeds of this work were already germinating in your undergraduate years. So you earned your BS in computer science at Brown University. And I have a suspicion that the ratio of, of women to men in computer science is about as low as it is in physics. So I'm curious, was that true? And what was your experience in that major? So I think that physics has a worse gender diversity problem than computer science. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do think that's happening, but here's what I do I know for sure. I went back recently, I went back and looked at my college yearbook and I went through and manually counted everybody who got computer science degrees the same year as me. And the ratio, as I took stock of this, was that 38% of the people getting computer science degrees my year were women. 38%, not 50-50, but a really good ratio. And so yeah. I actually didn't think any much of anything about gender mm. diversity when I was in college. I felt like I was welcome and represented in the classes I took. Um, professors were amazing at opening opportunities. Um, there were undergraduate teaching assistants in my classes that helped me realize that, you know, I could see myself represented in the upper class uh kind of people in, in, in the department um, and the graduate students. So I saw a lot of gender diversity when I was studying computer science. And I also saw a great representation when I first started my career, but it did go down from there, um, I must admit. And there's a Department of Education website where you can look up every discipline, every degree that is given out. And by year, you can see the ratio by gender. And the gender mm -hmm. I will acknowledge is only men and women right now, not non-binary. Um, okay. And I want to acknowledge that I believe that uh, gender is fluid and um, and not just binary. But anyway, the DEI, I believe that's the Department of Education anyway, um, has a website. And what happened in computer science from the peak year, 1985, which is when I graduated with my mm -hmm. degree, that was a peak year for women studying computer science across oh. the whole United States. Um, the rate, uh, I said 38% for my class at Brown, it was 37 and a half percent or something mm. that nationwide. Wow. And it went down to a low of about 17%, um, just years, you know, over the years and it's starting to creep up yet now. So first of all, I want, I'm, I'm positive that we are seeing more women, welcoming more women, getting more gender diversity in computer science. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with the physics information and statistics, though. 
Um, so at, at any rate, to answer your question, that's sort of the long background. I've shared a lot of information here, but it was the fact that I saw this decline happening in the industry, in the workplace that I was in, that led me to start working on how can we create inclusive workplaces where, yes, women can thrive and do their best work, but also people from other underrepresented groups. Yeah. So to, to kind of go into that a little bit, a little bit more. So just for my listeners. So after school, you, you experienced some success in the business world. You spent a few years as a software engineer before joining Adobe Systems, where you were first a senior director of engineering systems and then a vice president of engineering. Yeah. So this, this seed, which I was going to say was germinating, which actually wasn't germinating early on because you weren't seeing that, that lack of uh, diversity. Um, it seems that you began to see it at this point, and yes. now a new dedication for inclusion and allyship for underrepresented groups began to experience rapid growth in those years. So, so what, what was it that you were seeing around you that inspired this calling? Yes, there, when I was at Adobe as a VP of engineering, I went to a conference called the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing, which is a long name, but at any rate, it's a famous conference in computer science. Um, it's called just Grace Hopper for short. And I went to that conference and I realized that there was a whole dialogue happening around the importance of gender diversity, why we need to attract and retain more women in this field, why that's good for the technology we are building. There was a whole conversation going on that I hadn't been a part of up to that point. And I realized, okay, I am the most senior woman in, in engineering at Adobe. I have a role to play for women in engineering, as well as across the company. Uh, I have a role to play in terms of making sure that they feel that they can grow their career at Adobe and um, stay here if that's where they want to be growing their career. So I came back from that conference. It was inspirational. I came back all fired up and I started our women's employee resource group for the company. And I started putting offers out like I'll mentor women and doing a lot of that. And looking out like it varies, like we're putting on an internal conference, making sure that there was gender representation on stage, mm. doing things like that. And I did that kind of advocacy work for women across my company for a few years, in addition to being a VP of engineering during that time. And right. over a few years, one of them just became my passion. And it wasn't being a VP of engineering anymore. I have to admit, it, I just wanted to do this kind of advocacy work full time. So this goes back about nine years now. I left my tech career behind in order to create a leadership coaching practice for women who are working in this industry. Um, okay, so I thought that would be good. And I love coaching. I'm still doing that today. Nine years later, I love my coaching practice. But I realized early on, Brad, that I had this big problem with my new leadership coaching practice. And the problem was that if I really wanted to help my clients be successful and grow their careers, I needed to make their companies more inclusive. Mm -hmm. They were all working in tech companies where the closer you got to the C-suite, to the CEO, just the mailer and paler these organizations got. And, you know, I'm, I'm pale myself, I'm white. Um, and I just want to say with all due respect to anyone who's listening, who's male and or white, um, it's just, this isn't about shaming and blaming anyone. This is just what the demographics were. And I started to realize, of course, that means that these companies aren't the true meritocracies that I think they all think they are, where mm -hmm. you get ahead on your merits, on the work product you're doing, on the impact you're having. Instead, the white men were getting ahead at a faster pace than everyone else. 
So that's when I'm like, okay, if I want to help my coaching clients, I need to make their companies more inclusive. And in fact, I need to make all of tech more inclusive. And if you're laughing at me now- Sounds easy. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> Anyone can do it. Exactly. Um, I realize how um, how just bizarre it may sound that like here, Karen thinks she can change the world, change tech. But I was like, it was determined to see, I was determined to see if I could make a difference. So the first thing anyone does these days when they want to change the world is you start a Twitter handle, right? So I started a Twitter handle. I started it uh, in 2014. Uh, it's called at Better Allies. And my goal is to share what I saw were these simple everyday actions anyone could take to be more inclusive. Um, little actions such as, you know, I pledge to notice when an interruption happens in a meeting and redirect the conversation back to that person with a simple hey, I'd like to hear Anna finish what she was saying. You know, something respectful, but making sure that the person who was interrupted gets the floor again. Um, or doing things like, you know, at our next all-hands meeting, I'm going to ask what we're doing around pay equity because I don't know what we're doing and I'm hearing that's a problem, especially for women in tech. Um, things like that. So I was just tweeting a couple times a day and then I started getting speaking requests to this Twitter handle, um, which... That led to me speaking at conferences as well as corporations about these simple everyday actions people could take to be better allies. And every time I spoke, Brad, I'll, it was so funny. Someone in the audience, it was like just uh, predictable. Someone in the audience would ask, hey, Karen, we want more of this. Do you have a book? And mm -hmm. <laughs> for a few years, I was speaking and I kept saying, no, no book yet. Nope. Sorry, no book. But I did finally write my book, Better Allies, um, and that was back in 2019. Um, and I recently published a second edition earlier in 20, uh, 2021, earlier this year. I, I love that that big mission. I mean, I mean, the way you phrase it, I'm just going to change all of all of tech yeah. to recognize this. And of course, that that is enormous. Um, and yet, you are you are making so many inroads into that. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, we were we were talking before I began recording about about a, a newsletter that you share on a weekly basis called the Five Ally Actions Newsletter, and it, it's something that uh, a former institution I, I worked at, their teaching and learning center, they just happened to mention it in a little in a, in a little um, newsletter they sent out to me, and I said, "Oh, that looks interesting." So I, I clicked on it and said, "This looks like something I I I want to subscribe to because I I want to be better at this myself." I've always felt myself to be an ally. And yet I, I can't say I could point to any particular actions that I was actually doing that would support that. And I felt like it was time for me to step into some new growth. Oh. And and that felt like a perfect way. So I subscribed to that. You know, I get this newsletter in, in my my inbox every every Friday. And it really has been so great for me. It's something that I, I'm always reading these and 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 really seeing the places that that I can act, and and some of those some of those are meant, I think, a little bit more for for maybe kind of a, a corporate world, and for and for folks who are doing hiring, and and that's not the role I'm in. But there's other pieces that that talk about what you can do in meetings, and and we'll get into that a, a little bit. You mentioned about uh, you know not interrupting uh, somebody during a conversation, and that's something where you know I see it happen, and you know everybody's trying to kind of clamor to say something. Uh, sometimes and it's like I'm just waiting for the right time and maybe you accidentally interrupt somebody and and I've already now after reading that I've apologized to somebody before and said you know I'm really sorry I didn't I didn't mean to jump in I, I really should have let you finish your thought and and they were 
and they were very appreciative of that. So already like these little things that I'm learning, we can begin to to act on. So you have this this big goal, but I, I think you, you are making some great strides towards that. So, so thank you for that work that you're doing. Oh my gosh, thank you. That is just, it's music to my ears to know that that newsletter I send out is making an impact. And, and I'll also share with you, Brad, like this whole field of allyship is huge. And I, even though I speak about it all the time, I have books on this now um, and I'm still not a full expert. Like I am learning all Mm -hmm. the time. And that's why I love sending out my newsletter is, okay, here's what I've learned about allyship this week. Um, And as you know, I also share mistakes I've made and what I've learned from them, Mm -hmm. because I think that's important to um, kind of normalize. Like this stuff is kind of messy at times and we're not going to get it perfect, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something and take some action. Um, And when we make a mistake, we can learn from it and do better moving forward. So um, I love writing my newsletter, but I'm, I'm, loving that um, you are finding it helpful. And I I hope others are as well. Yeah. Even as you're saying that, I'm just remembering one from a a few weeks ago uh, that I don't, I don't know, for some reason, it's just, it's just stuck as as using the word, you know, like, I think you said you use the word um, like former slaves or something like that. And a a few folks wrote back and said, well, don't, don't use that, say enslaved humans or or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't quite remember, but I, it, it was impactful that, you know, just little phrases like that are like that, that's where we, that's where we begin. If we begin to change how we speak uh, and to do that, that we have to change how we think in order to change how we speak. That's, that's where the change begins. Yes. Yes. And focusing not on someone's identity, they were a slave, but focusing on this is something that happened to them. They were an enslaved person. Yeah. That was eye opening to me. And I'm now paying attention to like various, you know, news articles I read and so forth. I'm like, oh, they, they've, um, they learned this before me, or they haven't learned this yet, this way of speaking um, in the language they should be using. It's, it's interesting. So in physics, we talk a lot about operational definitions. And I have a thought of what being an ally means. I'm sure lots of people have a thought about it. And I, I'm, I'm curious, what, how would you define allyship to, to be an ally? And who was an ally for whom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so at its core, allyship and allies are people who use their position of privilege to be more welcoming, to open a career door, to um, create an environment where people who don't have that same level of privilege can thrive, can do their best work, can feel a sense of belonging and so forth. So we're using our position of privilege. So what's privilege mean? Privilege is really an unearned benefit we have because we're part of a social group, a social group based on the color of our skin, our gender, but maybe our educational status or um, our our sexual orientation and identity, our religion, if we have caregiving responsibilities or not, if we have enough money in the bank that we feel comfortable maybe taking some risks with our career or not. These are all different kinds of privilege. And in my book, and by the way, I also have this as a free download on my website, betterallies.com, but there's a list of 50 ways you might have privilege in the workplace. And I think it probably translates pretty well to the academic environment too. But in this list of 50 ways, I encourage people, like, go look at the kind of privilege you may have. And yeah, the top of the list is you're white and you're a man, but that's not where it stops. Um, I, as a woman, even though I'm a woman in an underrepresented demographic in tech, for example, I still have a lot of privilege 
because of other aspects that are on this list. I have privilege because I'm in a stable relationship. I had a VP level title, which opens doors for me. And now I'm a published author. I mean, it's like I have a ton of privilege, even though I'm part of an underrepresented group. So I share this because I want, definitely want white men to feel a sense of um, responsibility and empowerment to be allies. But I think that many people can use what privilege they do have to be an ally and to take action and really think about not shining the spotlight on yourself, but shining on someone else, opening the door for someone else um, and making sure, again, I say this a lot, they can do their best work and thrive. Yeah. And this is, this is definitely something that, that we need to be thinking about in, in the field of, of physics. You know, going back to the 1700s and 1800s, it was such a, a white male European sort of in, endeavor. And that, that is only so very slowly changing. And, you know, the, the conversations are, are really are really beginning to move now in, in physics. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to bring up, uh, bring up was that one of your speaking engagements uh, that I've noticed on your speaking engagements page is that you've spoken at the Conference for Undergraduate Women in Physics in both 2021 and 2020. So from conversations that you had with the organizers and participants there, I'm, I'm curious what you've seen as some of the key areas for growth and allyship in the field of physics from your perspective. Yeah. So first of all, my message, I gave a keynote at the 2020 conference, and my message was, uh, women, we can be allies for other women. Um, so what does that look like? We're, all of the women in the audience were studying physics at the undergrad level, plus some advisors and, and allies who were also there. But I want to make sure people realize like, yeah, this is a male dominated field. Yeah, that's going to mean that you're going to be excluded at different times or have a more difficult time than others that are in the majority. But instead of focusing on woe is me, we can all be um, kind of like, uh, rising tide raises all boats kind of thing um, so that we can all look for ways that we can be allies to each other. So I was trying to make sure that the women felt that um, that sense of responsibility and camaraderie around being in an underrepresented group. Um, it was a positive message. Um, and um, and then the 2021 com conference was, a, I was on a panel with some other um, panelists. And what was interesting is the 2021 one, because it was during the pandemic and it was a virtual environment, there were many more people from around the world. And I realized oh. that um, while I think we have a lot of work to do here in the United States where you and I are both based, that globally they there are many regions that are a step behind, if not a big step behind mm. in this whole inclusion journey. And so um, the work that we are doing we should be sharing so that as people worldwide start wanting to do more, they have some great examples. Um, hopefully many of them will apply to their um, regions, their demographics, their cultures and so forth. But we're, um, we are a step ahead and there are people who want to be learning as, you know, just as we are learning, they want to learn just as much. I know that the demographics, you know, I, well, I don't know what they are, but I know that they are low for women entering this field. So, um, Anything we can do to keep all of those incredibly talented, bright women who want to study physics, anything we can do to keep them in their field, I think we should be doing because we need every one of them. Uh, an interview that I did a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be releasing soon, is for a project called Step Up, where there's this, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's this really big initiative to, to really reach high school women, mm -hmm. to show them that there is a place for you in physics, and to, to bring 
elements into the curriculum. Um, and it's sort of their, their mission is to try to get one new woman undergraduate major in each college each year. And that if they can just, you know, just by starting with like individual people kind of grow the the field, like that, that's sort of their approach. And they have some amazing resources. And oh, wonderful. Yeah. I actually, I'd be happy to, to share that website with you. I think you'd be really interested. Yeah. In I would doing. love to take a look. So yeah, afterwards, please send it to me. So I want to take a, a closer look at the, you know, the type of environment that my listeners are in. So, you know, many of my listeners are going to be uh, faculty at colleges, or they're going to be high school teachers. And the places we're often in are classrooms and meetings. So I want, I want to hit both of those. So just to start with, you know, we're often a science faculty in a department meeting. And I think that's that's a place where uh, some of these these steps and, and kind of calls to action that you have would be able to take place. So what are some things that you can think of that, say, I could do in, in my department meeting as, as I see what's unfolding around me? All right. Yeah. So let's quickly explore some of the non-inclusive behaviors that tend to happen in meetings, any kind of meeting. Um, I've already mentioned the interruption, and there's data, social science research that shows that men tend to interrupt women more than the other way around. Um, But regardless of who's doing the interrupting, when it happens, the person who's interrupted is basically left out of the conversation and Mm -hmm. starts to pull back over time. It's like, why do I even bother trying to speak up? No one listens to me. So first thing, look out for interruptions. Um, if they are happening in a virtual setting, they it may be looking like someone trying to come off of mute and never getting a word in. Or mm-hmm. in a rounded yeah. table, it could be, I mean, we know what an interruption sounds like. Look out for them. And redirect the conversation, as I said earlier, with like, hey, I'd like to hear Anna finish what she was saying. You know, I think she's onto something. So, you know, some comment like that to redirect. Or... If you have a relationship with the person who's doing a lot of the interruptions, maybe you want to like send them a quick chat message or direct message somehow and say, hey, I don't know if you realize you're doing this, but you're, st- you're talking a lot. How about in the second half of the meeting, you and I both listen more and talk less? Um, you know, just to, because sometimes people who are dominating a conversation don't even realize it. So yeah. be an ally kind of behind the scenes like that too. So interruptions, that's one. Another thing that happens is something called idea hijacking. And idea hijacking is when someone says an idea, maybe it doesn't really get land well, doesn't get picked up, it gets ignored, but then someone else says the same thing in the same meeting and gets all the credit. That's kind of Hmm. hijacking someone's idea. So if you spot that happening, look out for it. First of all, that's the first step. But when you spot it, you can say something like, hey, uh, I, I see you agree with the point that Deepa was making earlier. Like, you know, just to make sure that Deepa, the originator, gets the credit. Amplify mm-hmm. the original person who spoke about it and, um, and make sure they get the credit. Um, a third thing, I'll stop here, even though there's probably more we could talk about. But a third <laughs> oh, thing sure. is something called meeting housework. Housework being things that have to get done for the health of a meeting but aren't someone's job. Like maybe it's um, tracking some action items that came up or scheduling a follow-up meeting Mm -hmm. or um, uh, even ordering food or planning a team building event. These are all things that are helpful to do. But if if it's not someone's job to get them done, it's housework that doesn't really help uh, grow someone's career. In fact, it puts them in service to their peers around the table, so to Mm -hmm. speak. When you see some housework being needed to get done, 
Um, there's social science research, again, that shows us that women, and especially women of color, get to, asked to do more of this housework mm. than their male counterparts. So look out for that. And then as a white man, yeah. offer to do it yourself or set up a rotation for things like that. If mm -hmm. it's a, you know, a weekly or monthly staff meeting, faculty meeting, um, set up rotations for who's going to order the food or track the action items or uh, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. So I'll stop there. Hopefully those are feeling like they resonate with uh, your experience in faculty meetings. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are definitely pieces that, that I can see that are very, very important to, to think about and, and look out for. And so, so thank you for, for those. Another one I really want to touch though, is what can happen in the classroom. So I'm, you know, us educators, we're going to be in sort of a, a position of power. So we can, you know, we're helping to set the the guidelines, the rules, the the norms that would be expected in a classroom. So was, there's a certain way that I can behave, certain sets of norms that I could ask for that that could be supportive of allyship. And there are certain things that I think the students could do, and knowing how to ask that of them as well. So I'd be curious what your thoughts on are. What can I do in the classroom, both myself, um, but also to help encourage my students to do? Here are two ideas. Um, one is, and this is a studied phenomenon too, is that presenters, so we'll call it teachers, teachers tend to call on audience members, students, who are men. So if a bunch of people are raising their hand to ask a question, it chances are uh, a man, a boy, would be called on before a woman. So pay attention to that. Hopefully you're not doing it, Brad. Hopefully your listeners aren't doing that. But that's one thing I would pay attention to is who do you actually call on when they're, it, mm -hmm. when they're raising their hand? Um, and maybe as an experiment, just start calling on very specifically a woman first. Every time you, you ask a question or looking for answers or something, call on a woman just as a, a way to disrupt that. And if you have a non-binary person in the classroom, make sure you're rotating them in as well. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing I wonder, and I'm thinking about physics labs I've worked on mm -hmm. when I was in high school as well as in college. I wonder if there isn't housework that happens in a lab for mm -hmm. any lab assignment when a group of students are working yeah. together and there are different roles that you might be playing. Um, is there housework? And can you pay attention to that and making sure that maybe the one woman in a, a assigned work group of four students, for example, isn't doing more of the housework versus the really right. meaty, maybe part of the experiment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I could absolutely, I could absolutely see that where, you know, uh, you know, male student might kind of, you know, push in and say, I want to be the one that's sort of tinkering with all the equipment. And then because they've done that now, maybe the female student has to sit back and be the note taker. Be the note taker, record the data maybe, yes. Yeah, and yeah. that could end up happening every week, for instance. So yeah. so yeah, I absolutely see that that one way to, you know, to try to mitigate that would be to ask students to, uh, to change their roles each week. And there's certainly, there's very organized ways that have been published about, you know, have this role, this role, and this role and swap them around. But I think this can even be done in a less organized way if that doesn't really resonate to have specific roles. But to say, hey, you know, if you were the one with your hands on the equipment last week, let's switch it up this week. You know, let your, your lab partner or somebody else in your group be the one with their hands on the equipment. And now, and now you, you do the note taking. I love that so much. Woo. So, okay. That's, that's great. Yeah. So definitely ways that we can, we can think about bringing that into the classroom and, and certainly some of the, the, 
the ones that you suggested about what we can do in in meetings with our colleagues are exactly the sorts of things I think that we could look for our students doing. You know, I just think about how how best to address that. So let's say I see a male student who who tends to to butt in a lot, who seems to seems to always be talking over their lab partner. Do you have a sense of what are some sensitive ways that I might that I might be able to go about that? Because that can be, I think that I can see that being hard for me. I can see that being hard to like. I would look at it and say I don't like that, but a lot of us, I think, fear confrontation. So. But how could I do it that I wouldn't make a confrontation out of it, but that I, I could call attention to their to their behavior? Yeah, I'm a big fan of praise in public and criticize in private. So yeah. seeing if that that student who is interrupting, dominating conversation in lab, whatever, you know, see if they hey, do you have a minute after lab to stick stick around? I have something I want to talk with you about, you know, that type of thing. Um, but let them know what you're observing. I see you're, mm-hmm. you, um, you, you, you're very, you can compliment them, passionate about this topic. You have a lot to say, but do you realize that you, you know, dominate a conversation or make it hard for other people to participate? Um, you know, something like that, that, and by the way, if you can at all relate to it in terms of, you know, I used to act like that mm. too. I remember when I was in labs, I'd be so excited about what we're doing, whatever. You, if you can say, I used to do that too, but I have since learned that when our, my enthusiasm wouldn't let other people participate the way that they should be participating. So I've learned to tone myself down. I'm, I'm probably using the wrong words here, but, um, but this approach of seeking common ground with someone and then educating mm-hmm. them, seeking common ground. Like yeah, I used to think yeah. that too. I used to be like that too, if it's genuine. And then, but I have since learned to sort of educate someone about the impact of their behaviors um, to Mm -hmm. kind of bring them along with you, bring them, bring them up to speed to where you are. Um, It's a great technique for not shutting someone down to not feel like they are being blamed for something and shamed, but more like, Hey, I used to be like you too. Here's what I've learned. Right. Yeah. Because we, we definitely want to encourage that enthusiasm, but yeah, start to start to work on some of the the new cultural norms that, Mm -hmm. that we're, that we would like to see set. And, And that's, and that's that's a big part of conversations that are going on in physics departments. I know uh, my department in Hamilton College we're having meetings over the the summer to talk about you know what are some ways that we can bring uh, ideas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice into our our classrooms. What are some small steps that we can start taking across the the physics major across the curriculum over multiple years? Pieces that we keep reminding our students of. It's like you're going to be. You're going to be in the physics community as a peer, as a colleague, and, and this is this is the direction that we want to go uh, for as this community. I love that. And hey, Brad, if you're not already thinking about doing this too, it, you consider like letting a class know, a class know that hey, I am working to be a more inclusive teacher, an inclusive instructor, inclusive professor. I am working on making sure that I am inclusive, and. I am open to feedback. If you ever see me doing something that you do not think is inclusive, please point it out to me. Open that door because here I am providing some ideas of what may be happy in a classroom, but it's really the people who are from these underrepresented groups who know what the microaggressions are, who know what it feels like to not be included, who feel um, left out or something. Have them feel comfortable raising awareness to you as the teacher, as the authority figure, so that you can learn 
from those examples, those real, real things that are happening about how you can be a more inclusive teacher. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So thank, thank you for everything that you've offered here. Uh, I'd like to give you a chance to share some final thoughts and encouragement for all of us and then let everyone know where they could go to learn more about your work and how we can go about uh, becoming better allies. Oh, thank you. So this whole space of allyship is a journey. Being an ally is a journey. Um, you're never done. You're never going to get a badge or a cookie for being a good ally. It's just like we have to keep learning and taking steps forward to be a better ally with everything that we are learning about. So it's a journey. I just want to emphasize that. And on that journey, there's so many resources. I am one, but I have a book people can read. I have my newsletter, which you've kindly given a shout out for already, and other resources on my website too. So betterallies.com has all of the information about my books and my newsletter and other resources. Um, and as I shared, I am still learning on this journey myself. So the more people who join me, I will feel a sense of camaraderie with all of you. And that's why I sent out my newsletter. It's, um, it's to share what I've learned during the course of the week about how to be a better ally and um, hopefully bringing people along with me. Karen, thank you so much for this conversation today. It's really, I almost wish I had video for this because your face beams as you, as you talk about this. You're, you're definitely a, a light for, for sharing this and for, for encouraging us uh, along the way and, and knowing that learning new things is not easy. We're all going to be making mis mistakes along this journey and um, that we can all have a little bit of, I, I guess, forgiveness for, for ourselves for mistakes we make and forgiveness for others who are, who are also trying. Um, so, so thank you for that encouragement and all the resources you've shared. Thank you. Even though I've been subscribed to the five ally actions newsletter for over a year, I still got so much out of today's conversation. Plus getting to speak with Karen was a real treat and privilege. I love her energy and authenticity around this work, but today's questions and answers only scratched the surface of how we can be better allies for our colleagues and students. I wholeheartedly recommend subscribing to the Better Allies weekly newsletter or pick up her first book, Better Allies, or her newest book, The Better Allies Approach to Hiring, which would be great for anyone sitting on a hiring committee. You can find everything at her website, www.betterallies.com, and you can learn more about Karen and watch some of her online talks at karencatlin.com. Catlin is spelled C-A-T-L-I-N. I've put links to all of these websites, as well as a TEDx talk that she gave and the Department of Education website she referenced today in the episode show notes. Just scroll down on your podcast app or go to www.physicsalive.com ally. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, leave me a rating and review on your podcast app. These ratings help put Physics Alive on the radar so that other educators can find it. For instance, if you use Apple Podcasts, go to the Physics Alive main show page, scroll your way toward the bottom of the page, and there you can tap to rate and click on the tiny little box that says write a review. I just went to my favorite podcast, the Ed Surge podcast, and left a review. Ed Surge is a weekly podcast about how education is changing, and the host, Jeff Young, talks with educators, innovators, and scholars at all levels of higher education. I've been listening to this podcast for years now, and it's been such an inspiration for me and gives me so many thoughts and ideas about the world. 
I mean, is it my favorite podcast? Maybe Physics Alive is my favorite podcast, but I guess, I guess that one's my second favorite. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you feel inspired to be a better ally. Today's action step? Subscribe to the free 5 Ally Actions newsletter. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever hear that little voice inside that wants to support and uplift everyone around you. And be well.